I grew up in a house where my dad would like to throw out all sorts of uh, nuggets from history, and he would do this in the oddest of times. Uh, he'd occasionally mention something, a big event that he remembers from U.S. history and when it happened, and we'd be watching a sporting event or <clears throat> the news, and something would spark a memory, and he'd, he'd throw out a date. Jeff, do you know what happened this date? And I usually have no idea. Sometimes, if I was lucky enough, he would tell me where he was when that event happened and where my mom was, too, although it was weird because he was nine years older than my mom, so he would say things, well, Jeff, when this happened, I was enlisted in the Navy and your mom was in junior high. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. That's not creepy at all. <laughs> I mean, thinking, did you ever, did you ever do this or been around someone like this, you know, that, that has these dates? Uh, the where were you question. Well, I have a few this morning that I thought of. Where were you on November 22nd, 1963? My dad was in the middle of the Mediterranean serving the Navy when he heard that President John F. Kennedy was shot and killed. Where were you on February 4th, 1964? Tim Carter, you better know this date. My mom said she was at church. She didn't see it live when the Beatles debuted on Ed Sullivan's show. Did you know that, Tim? All right, he knows it now. Where were you on July 20th, 1969? My dad said uh, he just finished a day working at General Motors and headed over to his parents' house to watch the infamous uh, display on TV of Neil Armstrong. You know, the quote, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. How about a local one? Where were you on May 18th, 1980? I was almost two. And my parents were on the phone the day earlier, actually, I thought it was interesting, uh, calling my great aunt who lives in Vancouver, Washington, because my parents were planning a trip the next week to drive out to Portland, Oregon. That trip got canceled. Where were you on January 28th, 1986? I was in the third grade, waiting to be released as a class to go to the gymnasium so we could watch the Space Shuttle Challenger launch on delay. Praise the Lord, it was on delay. We never did see it. Where were you on September 11, 2001? I was in my Old Testament class in Bible college, minor prophets, when the word came of what happened in New York. You know, as you go through these dates, there's memories that stick to the dates. You know, for, for most, when you mention the date, it just sparks what happened, you know uh, the memories just flood your mind. So I, I called my dad on Friday. I had these dates set up, and I just started throwing dates at my dad, and he knew every one. He'd, he'd relate a story for every event. He, he knew exactly what was happening for him in that day and what he read or transpired. And got, in fact, he gave me five or six more that impacted him. And, and I went through all these dates, and then I, and I had one more. I said, Dad, I have one more for you. I said, April 3rd, approximately, A.D. 33. He said, I, I know that day. That's the day Jesus died. 
You know, as we look at John 19, I want you to, to know and understand that this is a day. This is an actual day in our history. All the events that we look at here in John 18 and 19 and 20, all throughout it is stuff that really happened. You know, historians believe that it's April 3rd, AD 33, the day that Jesus was murdered. Does this day impact you? How often during the week or month do you think about that day? Have you ever thought about that day? John 19 continues in this infamous day in our history, and Lord willing, the next three Sundays, we're gonna walk through John 19. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. We're gonna back up, though, into John 18, and we're gonna read from verse 33 in John 18 through verse 16 in John 19 this morning. We're gonna center our time in looking at the first 16 verses in John 19 as it begins the sermon. But follow with, me, follow with me as I read John 18, starting at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who hears, excuse me, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. John 19, verse one, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to be die because he had made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. 
So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Would you join me in prayer? God, as we look at your word this morning, even going through the, the difficulty of what's transpiring here in John 19, God, I pray you give us grace and understanding. I pray that you would apply your word to our lives. May we come with teachable hearts to hear from you this morning. And may you be honored and glorified in this place. I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. As we begin John 19, we're thrusted back into the horrific story of Jesus' last day on earth. And if you remember, a few weeks ago, we closed John 18 as Pilate had examined Jesus in light of, a, of the charges that were brought by the Jewish leaders, and he had, uh, he had acquitted him of all guilt. But instead of releasing Jesus, he brings him out in front of the crowd. And, and, and John writes here at the end of 18, but I have this custom that I should release one man. He's, he's, he's thinking, I have this option for them to, to now remove Jesus from this position. In Mark's gospel, we are told why Pilate named Jesus the king of the Jews as a way to express contempt for the priest's petty animosity towards Jesus. And I believe that Pilate thought that the crowd would agree with the release of Jesus, but that's not what we read. Barabbas was a terrorist to the Roman Empire. He was a charged murderer. And I'm sure Pilate was not happy to release him, but he had made a promise to the people. He had given his word, and for Pilate, it was safer to follow his word than his own conscience. And now that Barabbas is set free, Jesus was still captive, and that leads us to John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now that Jesus was rejected by the people, he would be abused by this worldly ruler. The Roman practice of scourging was a horrific form of physical abuse, using a, a whip with leather tails, which had bone fragments attached to it, along with pieces of metal. And there were three types of flogging practiced by the Romans. The lightest form was a, a milder beating intended to, to be a severe warning to the petty criminal. The second was a more brutal flogging for the moderately serious criminals. And the last was the most severe. It was a terrible and often fatal scourging that not only ripped the skin, but dug into the tissue of the back, which then exposed arteries and bones. This third form of flogging was imposed as as part of the preliminary parts of crucifixion. It seems as though in my study that the first form is what happens here in John 19, verse 1. It was the first milder form of flogging. As you read in other gospel accounts, the most severe form was executed on Jesus before he was crucified. So they beat him. And to add insult to injury, the Roman soldiers didn't stop there. No, in verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed 
him a, a purple robe. And they came up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. So they, they took a crown of thorns and they made it out of branches that contained some sharp spikes as long as maybe a foot. And they placed it on his head. It would be incredibly painful as they pressed it down into his skull. And then to add to this mockery, they, they placed a purple robe on Jesus. They show their contempt for Jesus while dressing him like a king and, and mocking him. Crying out, hail, king of the Jews. And then striking him repeatedly. Striking him in the face, in the back. Most likely in the head to, to make sure that crown wouldn't go anywhere. And this is all done on purpose. This is all Pilate's doing. He brings Jesus back out before the crowd. This happens a few times, back and forth, back and forth in these chapters. And in verse four, Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and, and Pilate said to them, behold the man. Pilate stands before the crowd, the religious leaders, the curious, and says, here, here, here is the man. I find nothing wrong with him. This is the, the second time that Pilate declares him to be innocent. One commentator wrote of Pilate's action of flogging Jesus is to make the person of Jesus appear to the Jews as ridiculous and, and harmless so that they would drop their accusation. Hence, Jesus has to step forth as a, a caricature of a king. And Pilate presents him with the words, this is the man, look how pathetic he is. Behold the man, Pilate cries out. Enthou anthropos, a mere man. And he stands by him before the crowd, beaten bruised, bleeding from the crown that's been lodged into his skull. Look, do you see him? He could even stop this. And you're fearful of him? You find this man so, so threatening? Look at this mere man. What are you so worried about? Behold the man. And what's the response? Verse six, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. And still, Pilate here is still trying to get him off his books. He wants him out. And he knew that he, that they couldn't crucify him, but he still doesn't believe that he's worthy to die at this point. And the religious leaders, they believe he must die because he calls himself the son of God. You know, the, an important thing here, friends, the Jews, though, didn't understand that it wasn't blasphemy to name yourself the son of God if, in fact, you were the son of God. Let that sink in. Jesus did nothing wrong. 
He spoke the truth. And you can read through 18 chapters of the Gospel of John the truth of who he was. And time and time again, the people reject the Son of God. Pilate himself rejects who Jesus says that he is. In verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at, a, at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has greater sin. And from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And what we have here is Pilate functioning out of fear. He is responding out of what he thinks people will think of him. And the religious leaders are fearful too. Who, who is this man who comes and dare questions what we do and how we live? How, how is it possible that we could be wrong? And Jesus says we're wrong. And the crowd is fearful. Is this the man who comes to destroy all that we've worked for? You remember that question I asked you at the beginning? Where, where were you when it happened? The next question that needs to be answered this morning from this text is, which one are you? Which one are you in this story? The answer is maybe we're all of them. All of them but one. First, we are Pilate. We're Pilate. One of the most important things to notice in this passage about Pilate is that he believes that Jesus is innocent. In fact, he says it three times in this scene, uh, once in chapter 18 and, and twice in chapter 19. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He is convinced that he has done nothing wrong as to receive the, the punishment of crucifixion. But when the rubber meets the road for Pilate, he is fearful of angering the crowd or the religious leaders. He doesn't want to stir things up, so he doesn't want to deal with them. So what we have throughout this scene is, is Pilate trying to avoid a decision one way or the other. And in the end, he's, he still hands Jesus over to be crucified. He had the power to, to acquit him. Instead, he sends Jesus to death. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, we can read in, in chapter 27, verse 24, of Pilate washing his hands of the situation, thinking that he can just walk away. He could just wash himself out of it leaving responsibility with someone else. But just because you try to tell people you're not responsible, putting your hands in some water, doesn't mean that you're actually not responsible. There's only one truly innocent person in this story. And he's the one that's gonna go to the cross. And friends, I know it's easy. My mind went there this week. To, it's easy to condemn Pilate here putting his name synonymous with weakness and corruption. We think that if the Lord of heaven and earth stood before us, that we wouldn't condemn him to death. But what was Pilate's true crime in all of this? Well, I have to look at another gospel, Luke 23, 
verses 20 and following. Listen as I read. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, a third time, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And then Luke tells us the answer. And their voices prevailed. Their voices prevailed. The the noise from the crowd outweighed the conscience of a man. The crowd won. He even ignored the urging of his wife. In Matthew's gospel, she, she sent word to her husband to have nothing to do with Jesus because she had a dream and it caused much suffering for her. And you know you're on the wrong path when you ignore the advice from your wife, right? And yet he does this. Diminishes his conscience, knowing what, what he knows to be true and puts it aside. And Pilate is now forced to make a decision. Will he do the right thing? Or will he do the popular thing? Will he fear God? Or will he fear man? You know, it's easy to find fault with Pilate. I mean, in fact, it's right to to understand right and wrong, but we need to pause and ask ourselves some questions. Have we ever chosen to do what is easy instead of doing what is right? Choosing the painless over the painful. Have we ever done something that we knew was wrong because we knew that it would please someone else? Have you ever compromised your convictions and, or maybe just kept silent when you should have spoken up just because it was easier to go along with the crowd? And I'm going to pick on a crowd this morning. Young adults here. Junior high, high school, college, single, young. I'm not young anymore. You are in the world right now. No matter where you go to school or work, you live in this world, and this world has this strong pull to want you to compromise. And listen, it comes at times when you're least prepared. Choose now. Choose today whom you're going to serve. Will you serve God or man? You need to choose right now and keep choosing every day. There's most definitely gonna be tension in those decisions and your friends most likely won't understand. But if you choose God and choose what is right, things will always go better in the long run. You choose to do what is right over against what is popular. And don't think that it gets easier as you get older, right? I mean, just the circumstances change. The pressure's still there. And if you're sitting here this morning thinking that you've just chosen correctly every time, then either you're perfect or we need to go select a book about self-awareness for you. Because if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we can confirm that we've had times in our life where we, we have chosen like Pilate did. 
Now, our actions were different than his, but ultimately, we were allowing the fear of others to dictate our decisions rather than the word of God. We, we wanted to do what was popular more than what was right. We choose fear, not courage. And so while we haven't done anything as awful as Pilate, it's probably because we haven't had the opportunity. And at the root of Pilate's issue is cowardice. And not all cowardice is public, most often is understated. But the most crucial place in the life where cowardice is most noticed is in the positions of leadership. The fact that Pilate is in a position of leadership and in a coward is much easier for us to notice. Here he is in a status given to him by God, and he uses this position to destroy the innocent. All because he's afraid of losing face with the people. Pilate here fears people more than he fears God. He tries to manage the situation. It's, it's easy to actively do the wrong thing, and even easier passively not to do the right thing. Simply because you want to please the, the group. But the problem is, is that those consequences can be felt for many generations. Men, I'm going to sing, uh, sing your, uh, I'm going to point you out. I'm with you, men. But I need to bring something up. You are to be leaders of your home. God designed it this way. And sometimes, it may be easier, you think, to be passive. Just doing whatever is necessary to keep the peace, right? It may seem easier to, to not set the agenda in our homes or offer loving direction to our families because we're afraid of what our wives might think or our kids might think. Isn't it more comfortable to do what our wives want instead of considering what they need? Or, or even more bluntly, men, to do what we want instead of what we need. How often do we as men choose comfort instead of courage? Men, are you leading your families out of conviction or convenience? And in the family... Parents are placed there to lead their children. But in too many cases, we have children leading the parents. Their comfort is our number one priority. Their opinions are central. Their selfish desires are shaping what our family does and how it works. Why? Because deep down, we're terrified as parents that if we don't revolve everything around our kids, that they will grow up to hate us. Or worse yet, run to complain that they were never really loved by mom or dad. And... We don't fall into these choices. We deceptively choose these things time and again that are unhealthy for our families. We need to sit down and examine our lives. Is there an area in our home and our workplace where we should be leading with conviction instead of leading out of fear? It's not that we ignore the suggestions of others, but that we lead with courage and not cowardice. 
If, if everyone else was right, if everyone was right, we would never need leadership. If your kids knew everything, if they were born knowing everything, they think they do, they wouldn't need parents. If everyone else was always right, there'd only be one political party. So whether you are a leader at school or at work or at home, you need to check to see if you're leading out of the fear of people or the fear of God. So first, we're Pilate. Second, we're the crowd. Coming back to John 19, verse 14, that was the day of the preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. At the crucial time in the trial of Jesus, Pilate comes back out to announce that he's found no guilt in him, and they cry back at him again for his death. And who are the they here? It's the, the chief priests, the rulers, the people. It's, it's everyone there for the Passover. They cry together. It's a universal. It's a unanimous verdict from the people in every walk of life and social class. And their cry is, kill him. You know, Peter helps us understand. If we're, if we're unsure where the blame lies, Peter opens it up for us in Acts chapter 3, 13 through 15, he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To that we're all witnesses. You killed the author of life. Why, why, why do they call for the murder of Jesus so viciously? You know, maybe, maybe it's a mob mentality thing, right? You know, when people do crazy things, when a crowd is all riled up. Or maybe they're just disappointed in Jesus. Maybe what, what Pilate had desired to happen with coming out bruised and beaten and bloodied, had a reverse effect. And they, they felt like this guy is a sham. I mean, five days earlier, they were chanting and looking for him to conquer. And here he is, bruised, beaten. He's pathetic looking. He's a phony, they think. And yet, to me, that's not satisfying enough. Because as you spend more time on earth, battling the flesh and observing humans that surround you, the reason is most likely the natural state of man. Listen, friends, at the core, at the center of each of us, we are opposed to God. We are his enemies. We are born into this world hating God. And we observe this crowd, the, the spewing of hatred in that day, and we see something of our nature, of our natural disposition toward God. And when the rubber met the road, the crowd would rather have known a 
proven murderer like Barabbas. They knew all about him, and they would rather have him out in the streets where their kids played and walked. They would rather have him than Jesus. As humans, we're not neutral towards God. You're not born into this world riding the fence about God. What should I choose? What should I choose? God is perfectly holy. And we were created to know him and to enjoy him forever. To obey and to worship him. But we have rebelled against him. We have looked for ways outside of God to be happy. Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We are his enemies. We are rebels against God. And he's a, a threat against our life. And every time we decide to live our own way. Instead of under Jesus' rule for our life. We are wishing that he did not exist. We're wishing that he's dead. This is heavy. You know, we walked through some of those events today, those dates that I mentioned at the beginning of where, where, where were you when this happened or where you heard about it? You even asked the question, were you there? Were you there when that happened? But were you there when they crucified my Lord? You know, there's an old Negro spiritual from 1926, and this is what the words say. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they pierced him in the side? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Do you think that you would have been different than the people in the crowd that day? Can you hear their voice crying out for Jesus' death? You know, this thought has completely rocked me this week. Can you see your face in the mob? You know, we can try to flatter ourselves as these religious rulers do and say that we're just, we're just spectators in this situation. But that's not true. We were participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, and, and handing Jesus over to be killed. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the answer has to be yes. Yes, I was there. And you may try, like Pilate, to wash your hands of the situation, but that will not work. Friends, until you see the cross as that which was done by you, you will never appreciate that it was done for you. You will never be able to claim the grace given by the cross until you are prepared to share in the guilt of the cross. Were you there? We were there in the crowd. We were there calling out. We were the crowd. 
Third, you are Barabbas. You are Barabbas. This was highlighted to me in a book that I read this week. I mentioned Barabbas briefly this morning. He's, he's known as the man that was set free instead of Jesus. And we know from the scriptures this man was in jail because he was a convicted murderer. He was also guilty of starting a riot. And he was a dangerous killer, a career criminal. That's why he was going to be crucified. Barabbas is not the person that we would like to be compared with, right? And if you're sitting here this morning thinking, yeah, I'm like Barabbas. We, 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 we run from that. We tend to think that we're a little better person than he was. But put yourself in his position. You're sitting in a cell. You know that all of your life's decisions have finally caught up with you. You have been living a life of rebellion, killing, stealing, destroying things. And you now feel the remorse of what you have done. And yet you know deep down inside you deserve this punishment. You know what is to come for your crimes. You have murdered. You will be flogged. You know this. You'll be beaten. You'll be nailed to a cross for your crimes. And you sit in this cell and you go through the stages of what's about to transpire with crucifixion. You remember hearing these warnings as a child from your parents. And the memories now are flooding your mind. They're going to drag me out of this cell. They're going to beat me. They're going to nail my hands and my feet to a piece of wood. And they're going to mock me. And the excruciating pain, the blood as it fills my lungs. And they'll break my legs to make sure I die. You know that's your future. You don't know when it's coming, but you know it's coming. And you sit and you wait. And you're filled with fear. You go over in your mind again what's going to happen. And as you're doing this, you can hear chanting and yelling from a crowd nearby. You know that your time is coming. The mob now is getting louder. Has everyone heard today is the day that I'm going to die? They're, they're coming out now that I'm going to be killed? And you hear now, you hear, crucify him, crucify him. And you know your time is done. And you, you, you hear the footsteps. And so you take your a deep breath. You know they're coming for you. And they grab you. Viciously, they, they drag you out of the cell. They haul you down the hall and they bring you in front of an angry mob and they're angry and they're screaming and you stand there, head down. You, you don't notice that another man has been let out. But then you look over and you see him. He's bloodied and, and beaten. Who's that guy? And the soldiers move towards you and you, you, you prepare yourself, you, you tense up and they set you free. You, you stare at the soldiers. And you're free and you look and you see that the crowd was yelling at that man. 
not you. And you watch later. You're completely baffled at what, what has happened. You, you stick around to see and you see this man who is now at this point just a shell of himself trying desperately to get a cross onto his back. And you look at that and you think that was my cross. You're completely mystified. How, this, how did this happen? You know your crime. You know you deserve that. And, and that man is now taking your cross. Jesus bore the guilt and shame and curse and disgrace that Barabbas deserved and Barabbas was set free. Friends, isn't this the picture of the gospel? We are like Barabbas. We are Barabbas. You and I are sinners sitting in a spiritual prison, bound and helpless, awaiting the day when we will get the punishment that we know we deserve. And yet Jesus then goes to the cross for us. He gets what we deserve and we get what he deserves. This is the glory of the cross, that God sent his son to die for men and women like Barabbas, men and women like us, seated here this morning. Why did Jesus die? I want to be clear, friends. Jesus didn't die because Pilate was weak. Jesus didn't die because Pilate was a coward. Jesus didn't die because the voices were louder of of screaming, crucify him. Jesus didn't die because the disciples were nowhere to be found during this. He didn't die because God couldn't get control of the situation. Jesus died because you and I are weak. He died because we hated him in our hearts and because we wanted to live our lives without him. You will not understand the events and the significance of April 3rd, AD 33, unless you understand your part in it all. Which one are you? Are you Pilate? Are you the crowd? Are you Barabbas? Which story makes more sense to you? whether it's being a coward or contempt or evil, we banded with them all in our anger, in our envy, and we killed Jesus. We killed the author of life. And the real hero in this story is the man who takes it all. So he could pay for our sins on the cross. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the answer is yes. And you will never be able to claim the grace given because of the cross until you're prepared to share in the guilt of the cross. I want to end by reading a hymn. It's entitled, I See the Crowd in Pilate's Hall. It says, I see the crowd in Pilate's Hall, their furious cries I hear, their shouts of crucified appall, their curses fill my ear. And of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one, And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. I see the scourges rend the flesh of God's beloved son. And as they smite, I feel afresh that I of them am one.
Around the cross, the throng I see that mock the sufferer's groan, yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. Plus I shed that sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Yet not the less that blood avails to cleanse me from my sin and not the less that cross prevails to give me peace within. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? We were there. We see ourselves. And from that, we recognize what Jesus has done for us. He died for me. He died for you, my friend. Let's pray. Father, what heaviness this is this morning. Again, remembering what you experienced on our behalf and that you willingly did this. You willingly took our sin upon yourself. There was no other way out for us. No other way to be freed from our sins. No other way to have salvation and eternal life. God, we thank you this morning that you sent your son to die for us. That we can remember this afresh this morning. Father, help us to share this glorious news with people we come in contact with. Help us to learn, even God, from this story. As we study, as we read, may you convict us and teach us and cause us to become more like Jesus. Help us to leave this place, God, this week and represent you well in the world in which we live. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.